Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 255 with Russ Lucis. I think you're really going to love this conversation with Russ. Russ has been a buddy of mine I have known for over a decade now, and he always has some thought-provoking, intriguing things to share when I'm talking to him. And, and now we recorded one, so I think you'll be enriched in, in numerous ways, including one, how to understand and use the concept of bounded rationality, two, how to identify avoidable failures, and three, the good and bad from Silicon Valley. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items that we've referenced, that's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F255. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I'll hope you check out some of our cool stuff. One thing I'll point you to is, is simply the magnifying glass. We've had over 250 conversations now. So their odds are good. We may have covered an issue relevant to you. So you can click that and readily search every one of those conversations because it's all transcribed. So that's pretty handy. Get right to the stuff you need in the moment or summon back to your recall something you've heard long ago that needs to get refreshed. Now, here is Russ's story. Russell Calusis is the founder of Tradecraft, a full-time in-person immersive trading program for people who want to work in startups. He was also previously the CEO of Big Lobby and the entrepreneur-in-residence of Founder Institute. He attended the University of Illinois, which is where we met. And here is Russ. Russ, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Oh, Pete, glad to join you. Uh, well, this is going to be a whole lot of fun, I think, because well, we've had a lot of great conversations that probably should have been recorded over the years. <laughs> and, and this time, we're doing one. And uh, you're in the minority, maybe only half a dozen guests or people I've known for years and, and prior to uh, the episode. So I want to put you on the spot and ask you to share with the world uh, a favorite uh, Russ and Pete memory. Oh, what's weird is that my like strongest associative memory of you isn't an actual event. It's a hand gesture. Oh boy. Okay. And it's yours. And it's like this very particular, like half, you know, Bill Clinton point, half just really excited, like jazz hands thing that you do when like something is really being optimized. And like, <laughs> like every time I, I like say your name or think of your name, I always just imagine you like pointing out as you've made some like really cool point and like your hand kind of wiggles on its way down. And it always like gets me excited. But let's see, if I had to actually talk about a favorite event though, like looking back when the, that's actually like relatively like significant, if I, if I go back and think about it, is uh, when you and I were in college, we spent one, I think, kind of like winter break working on some some silly little idea called Connect Text. Yeah. Which we had decided that if we could text message blast everyone on campus on where they should go and where it would be cool and what bar was full and what place was offering a new deal and whatnot, that, uh, that that would be great. And beyond being an idea that was a little bit ahead of its time and has now been executed through things like uh, Twitter and Instagram and Groupon and all these other things. Like, if I look back on the group of people that worked on it, there was there was me and there was you and there was Bo and there was this guy named Sergey, and like pretty much everyone who worked on that has now gone on to like do some pretty interesting and significant things in the tech. Sergey runs um, a vast majority of the product at Zillow. Uh, 
Bo started a company called Future Advisor that sold for a ton of money to, I think, Blackstone. I think Luke was kind of like weighing in on some of that stuff. We did uh, My Mini Life and Farmville. You're doing your stuff with this, with the podcast and the coaching. I'm hearing about you more and more. And then I'm kind of like pulling up the rear here by, by keeping myself busy here in the Valley. But like, I oddly, like there was pretty much nobody from that group who hasn't gone on and, and, and done something relatively significant. I just, I think that's pretty cool. That is cool. You know, University of Illinois in action. That's good. And you know, as I'm thinking about the gesture, you say, uh, my, my buddy Dave articulates it by saying, okay, have some things up here and I'm going to bring them over here. <laughs> yes. yes, that is that is the thing. Like, I can't hear not only your name, but I can't hear any variation of the word optimal without thinking of that gesture first. I think like if, if an associative memory is a, is a high valence event that tends to recall a very particular set of feelings for you, then like that word instantly recalls my memory and vision of you. And I just, I don't know, I've always found that interesting. Well, I, I'm flattered. Thank you. I'm encouraged to hear that. And I just think of, when I think of you, I think of, not for this just to be a, a, like a 40-minute love fest, <laughs> but I just think of how you I just sort of seem to very quickly seem to get to know lots of impressive people really fast. And so just like the folks that you get to have meetings with that are in the, the room with you, it's just sort of astounding to me at times. So impressive, sort of the gift and the the skill set you have associated with networking and relationship building is pretty awesome. And hopefully we'll learn a, a couple of those tidbits here today. Sounds good to me. Well, so just to orient uh, folks a little bit, could you maybe tell us the shorter two, three minute version of your career story from where you started to what you're up to right now? Yeah, I would say like probably the most interesting part about my story is is how early it started. I think I started my first like real legit business, one that I, I probably should have filed taxes for and, and, and produced real revenue on when I was eight. And that was a, that was a little snow shoveling business that I had started that ended up being kind of a a fun activity that I still talk about to this day with my parents and whatnot every time I see them. But basically from the time that I was eight on, I have always kind of seen starting businesses as a really good excuse to go out and learn new things and to go out and try to solve various problems I've seen in the world. So that has followed this like really eclectic path where in high school, I ran a company that did PR for local small businesses. And I got to do really like creative and fun things where like I would be on retainer for a local antique shop. And in order to drive business for them, I would end up throwing some party for high schoolers outside in the parking lot. And everyone would ask me, well, why are you doing that? And I'd say, well, because I'm going to make sure that the party runs over and all of these people need to be picked up by their parents. So their parents will end up spending 20 minutes inside, like browsing while they're waiting for their child to be done at this event. To in college, after I had sold the, the little PR company, I committed to the idea that I was going to like have a normal college life. That lasted six days until my then girlfriend and now wife moved into her school and I decided that the loft, the thing that actually raised the bed in her dorm room so that she could put her desk underneath it, uh, just wasn't up to my standards. And it was too expensive and, and not fit for the room and all this other stuff. So then I started a furniture company that ended up blowing up on me one summer and I, I went away on vacation for a few minutes and uh, came back and all of a sudden there was a hundred thousand dollars in orders that I had to figure out how to solve and that was my first exposure to kind of uh, explosive growth and really since then I've spent a vast majority of my career kind of 
uh, floating back and forth between a, a kind of like finance heavy version of, of business where I invested in a lot of real estate and did some uh, mergers and acquisitions on, on buying some small companies and then kind of staying true to my roots, which was more of a technology base and doing uh, you know, web design and marketing and, and software development for a variety of clients until eventually I found myself out here in Silicon Valley where I now run a place called Tradecraft. And what we do at Tradecraft is we kind of help people figure out what's next. One of the things that Silicon Valley is really good at is helping young founders and startups kind of succeed at the kind of company level. But there's not a lot of focus on individual people and making sure that they don't fail for avoidable reasons. Not the risk stuff, not the taking a chance, but just like kind of the simple day-to-day things that make sure that they're kind of achieving their highest and best use in the world. So. We take people who are transitioning into technology, we take people who are trying to shift from another career, or they're trying to you know, step up a level and kind of get a job that they, they otherwise wouldn't be qualified for, and, and we kind of provide some mentorship and guidance and education, whatever it takes to help them succeed. That's right. That's right. It's so perfect. Thank you for laying that out. It's very helpful. And so now I want to dig in a little bit when it comes to working with folks on the, the full career perspective and, and helping them succeed cutting the avoidable failure. We've talked a number of times about sort of thinking tools and common mistakes that folks make when they're putting together the game plan for their career. And and I love it. Like you told me a great example of how someone said, I want to work at Airbnb. And then you say, well, well, why do you want to work for Airbnb? And you sort of discover that that's not really the optimal path. There I go. Optimal. <laughs> And the hand gesture. (laughs) There it is for them. So, can you share with me a little bit, sort of, how do you think about and guide folks as you know they're sort of thinking through their next career move? Yeah, when you actually kind of break it down and step back and and look at the reasons that people both succeed and fail in their careers and, and really more holistically in their life in general, it can usually be traced back to this thing called bounded rationality. And not to get too geeky, but a little econ 101, like economics says that humans are these perfectly rational creatures and that we are constantly understanding what all of our options are and all our alternatives on how we can spend our time. And we have clear goals in mind. We understand our alternatives. We've collected all the information we can. And we're constantly you know, selecting our own highest and best use in the market. But practically speaking, rationally, emotionally speaking, that's not actually true. This guy named Herbert Simon in the 50s realized that humans are not optimizing creatures. We are boundedly rational, which, to to put it simply, means that when we're making these big, important life decisions, we often find ourselves in situations where we don't have enough information. We don't actually have the key information that we need to make that decision. If we did have that information, we don't have what he called intelligence, but what I call insight into why that information matters and how it will kind of play out in our lives. So even if I gave you access to everything that you could possibly need when it comes to the actual raw data, because you haven't developed an expertise around these new subjects and around this thing that you're about to do, you don't understand how it all fits together, the greater system of it. And unfortunately, the last bit of it is that we are often in a situation where we don't have enough time to offset the first two. We don't have enough time to go get that information or to really understand what that means. So when you understand that like bounded rationality is the reason why we tend to kind of miss stuff, then it makes it a lot easier to understand what it is that you have to provide somebody with in order to help them overcome that, 
right? So in some cases, it's just understanding what a career path looks like. And for you, when you're trying to break into a new industry, whether it's tech or finance or anything else, it's this unknown unknown, as Rumsfeld so famously told us. And it's not even reasonable, if you think about it, to expect you to understand not only all of the options that you have and all the paths that you can take, but what kind of opportunities and, and landmines you need to look out for along the way. You've never been there. You've never done that. It's not that you are going to Google and being too lazy to do your research. It's that you're going to Google and you're not even sure what to type in. You don't know what the right questions are. Yes, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, it's like if you were to take someone who's going into college you know, in the next few months, right? he's going to start college next fall. Like having been through college, having been there and done that, you would have all this great advice that you could provide somebody with. But going in that first time, like you wouldn't even know what the questions are. You haven't been faced with the problems yet. So a lot of times you end up making what are, in retrospect, pretty obvious mistakes, things that aren't really all that unique, mistakes that people have been making for millennia in some cases. And you end up having to reinvent the wheel and kind of recreate all of these possible ways out uh, for things that could be avoided. If you just had access to the right people with the right information at the right time. Okay. Oh, go ahead. When it comes to getting people over that, a lot of it is just a matter of recognizing where people are, in fact, boundedly rational and trying to act as that, that mentor, as that friend who can kind of help them through those times. Okay. Well, so then in practice, if someone is looking to make a career shift or enter into any new sort of great unknown unknown, what would you recommend folks do in terms of gathering a bit of that context expertise, sort of base level backgrounder to reduce the odds they're going to do something really dumb? Historically speaking, when you look back all the way as far as you can go up till now, there's only really been one form of solution that has worked consistently. And that's something uh, equating to mentorship or apprenticeship, right? Even if you're, you're go back to medieval days right up to now, like usually the best way that you can overcome the challenges you're about to face in college is to have an older brother or to have a, a friend who's already been there and done that and can, can guide you along the way and kind of help tell you not what to do, but like help you understand what decisions you have to make and what your options are. So like what I would say is seek out mentorship. And sometimes that's by literally going and seeking somebody out and trying to find a way to be valuable to them so that, that they will be willing to spend a few minutes with you and hopefully share some of that wisdom. But in the cases where that's not available, like seek out mentorship online in the form of all of the knowledge that exists there, the books, the podcasts, these types of things, go find people who've been there and done that and kind of look at what they did and work your way backwards. A lot of times when people come to us at Tradecraft and they're trying to figure out what their first job should be outside of Tradecraft, they go to Tradecraft, they, they get some kind of immersive learning experience and they go get that first job. We often don't tell them to start with figuring out what that next job is. We, we tell them to go try and figure out what they want their job to be five years from now. We call it our, our TM plus two or plus three, you know, not one time period out, but a few time periods out. We say, go find that. Then go find a few people who have that job. Then look for a pattern between the people who have that job that you want to have someday and what they did prior in their experience. If they were visual designers straight out of college, go be a visual designer. If they were just hustlers at brand new companies, like go be a hustler. Like Look for people who've been there and done it and do that well. That's great. And I think at the same time, while you're having those conversations with them, make sure that's what you actually want to do. 
like burst any bubbles that that you might have in terms of poor assumptions and getting a, a realistic job oh, preview. Yeah, I mean, far and away, the biggest ramification of bounded rationality is people avoiding it altogether. They avoid the big decision for some reason. The last like ten or fifteen years, it's been like something approaching cool to like not have goals. And to like not spell them out because you're supposed to just get on the rocket ship, as they say, or, or go where the world takes you, just pursue things. And like, that's just, it's ridiculous. When you talk to successful people, one of the, the things they almost always have in common is they always have goals. They always have something that's far enough out that'll be kind of a North star to them in their day-to-day activities. And there's, like, people think that if you pick a goal today, that that means that has to remain your goal your entire career. And that's, that's not true. There's nothing wrong with changing your goal as you get new information, but to not have a goal means that like you can't really evaluate whether or not you're doing well. And for some people they find salvation, right? If, if I don't have a set of goals to compare myself to compare my performance to, then I'm definitely not doing bad because I just never asked that question, right? But they almost always end up regretting it. They almost always end up looking back on it and having woken up one day and gone, holy crap, it's, you know, I'm in my, my earlier mid thirties. And like, I don't really like where I am. I'm not doing anything I care about. I'm not set up to have that, you know, senior level position in the firm or to have the influence or the impact that I want to have. And it's because they weren't being mindful of their most valuable asset early in their career, which, which is time. Bar none, the only thing that matters in your early, you know, the early stages of your career is time. And now you say the only thing that matters is time. You mean in terms of how you were spending it, and is that a wise use of the time? Yes, without a doubt. If I had to tell somebody like the asset in your life that you need to optimize for, especially early in your career, it is time. Right. The thing that I would tell you to go seeking out in your early days is knowledge. Right. In your early twenties, when you have a low standard of living, right? A low burn rate and few responsibilities. Like that is the best time to make sacrifices and to dedicate yourself to learning and becoming an expert in your craft, uh, you know, uh, going for mastery, if you will. But the thing you need to be most careful of is time because that's where this avoidable failure stuff really starts to kick in, not just in the in the small failures, the day-to-day stuff, but it's a common thing we see out here in the Valley is like people who go to law school, and they go to a great law school. They go to Harvard Law School, and then they graduate and they become a first-year associate in a top-tier firm in Manhattan. And then six months later, they end up on my doorstep. And you go, <laughs> whoa, wait a minute. What happened? Like, there's nothing wrong with deciding that you want a, a different path in your life. But my question to them is always, like, is there something that fundamentally changed about the field of law while you were in law school? Is there something about being a first-year associate that, that is different? And they always go, no, it's, this is how it's apparently always been. Well, if you had known that, if you had been forced to intern or something like that at a law firm for three months for the summer before you went to law school, would you have gone? And they always go, oh, absolutely not. You know, and it's not that going to law school is bad. I've got you and I both. We have a bunch of friends who are lawyers and they they love it and they really enjoy it. But like real avoidable failure isn't often the stuff that you notice. It's the stuff that you don't even think of as failure. It's going to law school and dedicating three years of your life there only to figure out that that's not what you want to do. That's not the vocation of the life's work you want to have and having lost that time because time is valuable. So when we talk about these avoidable failures and these whoopsie-daisy kind of moments like, oh man, I wish I hadn't done that. Let's talk about some of your pro tips to get a little bit of a preview or a test in advance. We talked about getting a, a peek from mentors of an apprenticeship master type folks. You talked about doing an internship. You talked about availing yourself to the books and podcasts that, that give you 
a glance inside. Uh, what are some of your other favorite tactics for uh, getting uh, a feel for things in advance of, of doing the thing? Well, I'll tell you one that, that is one of my favorites, but is, is almost the antithesis of the ethos here in the Valley, at least when you, when you first start to say it. And that is, I tend to focus more on avoiding failure than I do on having some world-changing success. And it's not because I'm not an optimist and it's not because I'm not ambitious. I, I like to think that I and the people that I work with are both of those things. Like anyone who tells you that they can give you the five steps to success and like how to turn yourself into the next Mark Zuckerberg, anyone who's promising you that you're going to be the next X factor, they're lying. Because either they don't know how complicated this stuff is and you shouldn't be listening to them, or they do know and they're just trying to sell you something. Like it is impossible to predict with any level of certainty what is going to make somebody fantastically successful. There's just too many variables that have to line up, too many things you don't have control over. And because of that, like I tend to focus more on let's just make sure that I don't like screw up all the time. I don't, I don't waste my time and energy and money on things that can be avoided because I think it was like Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's investing partner who said, you know, if I can avoid death long enough, right. And it's like the Munger, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett, like these guys are, are kind of the most famous examples of people where like, they don't really try to knock it out of the park that often. What they try to do is just make sure that they're not doing anything that's going to cost them in a really, really big way. So I would say like, very practically speaking, mental models and cognitive biases. There are lists of them. There are blog posts. There's a hundred different ways to find these things. But like cognitive biases are those things that your emotional brain mostly uses to help you make uh, quick decisions. But a lot of times your cognitive biases will betray you, right? You'll have the recency effect. You'll have the anchoring effect. There's all these kind of different things. And the more you learn about them, it's kind of like learning about your own weaknesses. And the more you learn about it, it makes sure that like every time I'm making a big decision, I always run through, you know, the list of cognitive biases and kind of ask myself, am I, am I susceptible to this one right now? Have I considered this from the other angle? Same thing with mental models, which are usually just kind of a way of offsetting these cognitive biases and knowledge blockers. Like play devil's advocate for yourself. Always look at it the other way when you can. And like they said, like one really great example is they said, if you want to figure out how to really, really help something, a classic mental model is to instead think about what would really, really hurt something, right? Right. If you said like, I want to, I want to have the biggest impact in India that I can have over the next 10 years to, to raise the, the poverty level. I want to bring people out of poverty. Like the best way to find out what you can do to help is to start with going like, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? And that's when you start identifying things like infrastructure, right? Where it's like the internet would be great, but like we need clean water first. We can't worry about whether or not they've got one laptop per child until they have a way of charging that laptop, right? And those things are often forgotten. Okay, thank you. So I'd love to hear when it comes to the mental models and the cognitive biases, you said there's books and there's blog posts. Do you have a couple of favorites or go-tos that uh, have helped you expand your thinking and, and arrive at your checklist? Sure. What I would say is on the book front, there's a book called Seeking Wisdom from Darwin to Munger by a, a guy named Peter Bevelin, who's a professor who was an early investor in Berkshire. And he's just kind of written down a lot of the things that he learned over time. 
And it's it's a great book. It's one of my favorites. I technically work in in complex systems design. I'm a systems thinker as, as from a field perspective. And people always talk to me about like the fifth element and and these kind of more uh, pop culture type books, but. I would take this. Uh, I would take the seeking wisdom one any day of the week. Yeah, Matt Bodner also mentioned that back in episode one twenty seven. So two votes of confidence. Yeah, for some reason, I've just found that like any time I bring up that book and somebody has read it, I am almost instantly like kind of on the same wavelength as that person. It just it just works out great. The other one I would probably surface is the cognitive bias coder which you can find on Medium. It started off as like somebody just running through every cognitive device they can and trying to explain it. And then it turned into a pretty elegant little poster. And it's, it's gotten more and more kind of popular over the days. But like, that's a good place to start from a cognitive bias standpoint. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Okay. Well, so then I'd also like to get your take then in terms of, uh, that's a great career tip in looking at the T plus two, T plus three, uh, getting a real clear sense for what are we talking about here? In what ways might this totally go south or, or be disappointing? And now I'd love to get your take on, I mentioned at the beginning, you've got quite a knack for networking, meeting people, building relationships. How do you do it? It seems like I don't want to be in this in a pejorative sense, but you mentioned a lot of names. That's very impressive. And I'm like, dang, son, how did you end up in a room with Tony Robbins or whomever? Like, what's your, your philosophy and your best practices in this game? Yeah, I would say that it's actually kind of ironic that you would say that because nowadays out, out here in, in Silicon Valley, as opposed to U of I, I think I'm actually one of the less impressive networkers. There are some people here who are just truly amazing and they are they're actual extroverts as opposed to myself who's who's an introvert kind of masquerading as an extrovert when I need to. There are some people out there that I, I think are amazing at it that I, I would encourage them to continue to think at. But I do think I have a couple, which is the first one, like if you're not an extrovert, if you're not someone who naturally feels really comfortable like going out and striking up uh, conversations with new people that you don't know, you get to know some people who are befriend some people who are, because I would tell you that a vast majority of the, what you're saying is are like impressive names that I've gotten to be in a room with. They're not people that I reached out to cold. They're not people that I begged and borrowed and stole to kind of get in the room with them. They're people where my friends knew them and decided that I should end up in a room with them at some point, right? It's, it's through a lot of introductions. So it's just like, understand in your industry who the kind of super connectors are and, and try to befriend those people and tell them that, like, if there's, like, one of the things I kind of openly tell people is, like, if there's ever anyone that you think I should meet who up the ladder from me, down the ladder from me, regardless, like, if there's someone that you think I should meet, like, just make an introduction. Let me know. Like, I will take the time because I don't do a lot of cold outreach, but I get a lot of great introductions. I meet some great people that way. Oh, that's, and how does one go about identifying super connectors? I think it's kind of like with any, like my, for me, for example, like my partner is just world-class at this particular thing. Like he has traveled the world in his entire life from being a professional musician who was on the road to living in like a, a number of different countries with his wife, who's a diplomat. He's a guy who's had to kind of like drop into new communities and find his home over and over and over again. And he's just really great at it. And really early on in working with him and getting to know him, both as a friend and as a, as a kind of a business partner, I recognized that that was a weakness of mine in some cases and that he would be really great at helping me fill that. So like you will generally know who they are 
once you meet them, because they're going to be the ones who immediately want to introduce you to somebody else or the ones where you're being introduced to them. It's definitely one of these, you know, it when you see it kind of things. Okay. Gotcha. The other thing that I would say is probably as important, if not more important than, than anything is always focus on creating more value than you capture. Like, especially when you're trying to kind of go upstream, the most important thing you can do if you really want to get in the room with somebody who's important is be able to bring some value to their life. It's easy to think that that just because they're really big and important and you're just getting started, that there's nothing that you can do that'd be valuable to them. But that's just not true. It's just not. like they, You have a, a certain hunger and a certain perspective on things that they just don't have anymore. It's just like always be thinking like, how can I find some way to provide value to these people? And then offer that value up and just consistently commit yourself to creating more value than you try to capture. And eventually it will take hold and it will start to work. And like, if you're kind of a good person, you're willing to get back, you'll continue to do that no matter what height you reach in your career. That's how you just end up with a lot of really good friends. A lot of people that you can kind of call when the time is needed. I dig it. Yes. Generosity is a theme that's come up numerous times and I'm totally, totally on board there. I also want to get your take when it comes to in your realm of Silicon Valley, startups, fast-paced, everything changing so fast, what are your pro tips when it comes to learning quickly and adapting you know, smartly as stuff evolves and changes? One thing I'd say is like having that goal in mind. The most important step in learning quickly is make sure you're learning the right stuff. There are a lot of things that you can spend a lot of time learning that are kind of irrelevant to you. A good example of that is like, I will often be asked by small business owners that I still run into whether or not they should learn to use WordPress or some other kind of site creator. And I often tell them like, you should just pay somebody to do that. And the reason isn't that they can't figure it out or that it wouldn't be interesting to them. It's that the tools that are used to put websites together radically change every four or five years. And if you make a decent website as a small business, you shouldn't be creating an entirely new website more than every four or five years, which means you're spending all of this time up front to learn something that by the time you need it again, won't be relevant anymore. People forget that knowledge, like all other assets, has a decay rate. So just make sure you're learning the stuff that's going to be valuable to you. The other benefit of kind of keeping that end goal in mind is it, it kind of forces you to remember that Chances are, with the way the world is going, your job role will not exist in 30 years. Whether it's artificial intelligence, globalization, automation, like, there's all these different things that come into play. But like the truth is, like your role isn't going to exist. But if your job role isn't going to exist, your job goal probably will. Tweet that. It rhymes. One of the things you, you notice about your job goal is that you start thinking about the people that you're serving. If you're a designer, people aren't going to be using Sketch five years from now or 10 years from now, most likely. It's just not a probable thing. But are they going to be trying to design great user experiences that help get people the exact information they want at the exact time they want it with as low as friction as possible? Like, of course they are. Learn psychology. Learn these things that are kind of have a certain level of permanence. And the thing about having this kind of longer term goal in mind is that it helps focus you to make sure that you're spending your time on the things that are that are really valuable so you don't get surprised and kind of caught off guard. All right. One of the things that I, I worry about when I talk to a lot of young people today, especially people who are doing very, very well, is this kind of like, I don't mean to be harsh, but it's like a certain level of hubris that our generation has around our own skill sets, right? Like the compare and contrast is like a web developer 
a full stack developer here in Silicon Valley versus like a coal miner, right? And they look at these coal miners and they go, oh man, like that skill set, it's completely useless. Their job, that's not needed anymore. How could those people have let the world kind of pass them by like that? And I look at them and go like, man, you know, that's going to happen to us too, right? We're not only going to disrupt all these other people, eventually we're going to disrupt ourselves. We're one good algorithm away from not needing a front end engineer anymore. You know, it's like, you have to assume that like the, the time of you being able to join one company for your entire career or stay in one role for your entire career and just move up levels of seniority, all those times are gone. You need to be constantly looking forward and seeing what you can do to make sure that you are always on, on kind of the cutting edge of what it is that it takes to fulfill the goals of your organization. Okay, cool. And as we kind of move into the final phases, I want to get sort of your reflection. So you've seen a lot of people in inserting them into a lot of roles at the cool companies and the up and comers across Silicon Valley. And because it shows up in the news a lot, I think some people have like startup envy, like, oh man, that'd be so cool. That'd be so sexy to work, you know, fill in the blank, Airbnb, Facebook, Google, you know, whatever. So you know, I'd love to get your take on, you know, what are some things that the professional world at large can learn and model from Silicon Valley? And, and what are some things that Silicon Valley really needs to tone down and learn from the rest of the professional world? Oh, yes, I'm very passionate about this topic. All right. What I'd say is I almost separate kind of old school Silicon Valley to the one that you see today. And I'm sure that everybody says this about their particular time, but like the inspiration that I think we can take from old school Silicon Valley is to think big, be ambitious, recognize that, that Moore's law and, and these things that we get to do with our time, they can fundamentally change the world. I mean, people forget like there were no iPhones 11 years ago, right? It's literally like 10 and a half years ago, there was no iPhone at all. And for the first year of the iPhone, there were no apps, there were no external apps, there's no app market like they try to imagine living your life without a smartphone like the iphone today it's it's crazy to think that and like in our parents lifetime the microwave was created right like the, these are are transformative changes and we have some huge problems that are facing the world right now and some even bigger ones that are likely to to come with the kind of rapidly changing market conditions we're going to see with all this artificial intelligence stuff think big solve things that matter right do work worth doing from today's Silicon Valley, probably even more than the early days, the thing that I think we do really, really well here is we try to keep the cost of failure low. And we look at things over longer time horizons and more holistically than a lot of the rest of the world. Being, being from Chicago, not to mention friends that I have that are from East Asia and other kind of community-oriented societies, failure hurt. I failed a couple of times when I was in Illinois. You feel like a failure and you feel like you've done something wrong. Whereas like one of the things that Silicon Valley is really good at is recognizing the 25-year-old entrepreneur who raised half a million bucks from friends and family or, or angel investors or something like that and spent a year and a half busting his butt trying to make something work and then fails miserably. He may be a failed entrepreneur, but he is going to be the most qualified young employee you could possibly hire. Because they know what it's like, right? It's like they say, like, the best way to get promoted is to get your boss promoted. And like somebody who has tried and failed but had really worked for it, like, there's very little uh, that will prepare you to, to succeed in the world, like being thrown in the deep end. And, and that's something that the Valley is good at. We value it. The people who whose startups fail here, they get recruiting calls all day long from the moment they accept that it's time to move on. Now, on the flip side of that, I think we're starting to see some of the pretty significant negative ramifications of what technology can do. And like 
on the one hand, there's like the really surface stuff. There's things like social media addiction and the impact that that has on teenagers and the impact that that has on relationships and the impact that it has on the way we see the world. Like I am not someone who believes that teenagers posting things on Instagram and then valuing themselves based off how many likes they get. I don't believe that that's going to be a good thing. And like so many other people are kind of starting to say, I think that social media addiction is going to be kind of the sugar of this decade. And I think Silicon Valley is definitely at fault for a lot of those things. We do a lot of things that are right. And, and oftentimes just not out of any malicious intent, but just out of ambitious excitement and kind of a little bit of naivete. Like we do what we can to make things grow as fast as we can and increase engagement as much as we can. But like those same cognitive biases that I just got done telling everyone they should pay attention to so they don't make mistakes, those same cognitive biases are used against people to get them to use products more and more and more and more. And I think Silicon Valley nowadays needs to start remembering that not everything is fail fast. There are some things that we should be thinking through the second and third order effects to make sure that we're okay with where it is, right? Like Twitter is great. Without Twitter, we probably don't have Arab Spring. But without Twitter, we also don't have Donald Trump and fake news, right? Without Facebook and Instagram and some of these other things, we don't have everyone being able to find, like, if you go on the internet today, you can find your tribe. You can find a group of people who are like you. And that's amazing for that kid who felt like he was totally alone in his small town in the Midwest. But like, we also have trolls and we have things that make it worse. We need to start thinking through the ramifications of our actions. And sometimes we need to slow down a bit. And we need to make sure that we consider the real world ramifications that some of this disruption will have. Because I don't think that we're, we're always going to be happy with the results. And although I, I hope that everything that has already kind of been been put out there already, I, I hope we're going to figure out ways to, to kind of offset that and deal with it. I spend a lot of time talking to people about automation and, and artificial intelligence, universal basic income, and what are we going to do when kind of the world changes as, as things get even faster and faster here. We just, we got to be really careful about it. From a systems perspective, like the number one job in 47 states is truck driver. Most people are populated as truck drivers in 47 of our states. And Elon Musk could single-handedly put all those people out of business. And our economies are not set up to have 4 or 5 or 6% of the economy go unemployed all at once. And that's what happens. Because when semi-trucks become automated, it's not only all the truck drivers, it's a lot of those mechanics it's all those little gas stations along the way. It's all the little hotels and, and restaurants that are put all up and down I-80 running across the country. You're going to have some big ramifications of these things. And we need to, it's, it's kind of like our responsibility. If we're going to break it, we've got to worry about how to fix it too. Okay, thank you. Oh, well, Russ, tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? No, I would say like, listen to things like this, like listen, listen to podcasts and whatnot, but like, this should be the way that you get psyched up in the day. This is the way that you get motivated and you get excited and you get inspired. But at some point, also turn these things off and just get to work. Just go do something. Go write something, go read something, go learn something that's going to kind of move you forward at the end of every day. Awesome. Okay. Well, now could you share with us a, a favorite quote, something that inspires you? Uh, you gave me this one ahead of time and I was, I was kind of torn on it. So I have two. I'm going to share them both with you. The first one is kind of speaking directly to what we were just talking about, which is it's not a superpower if it can't be used for evil. Okay. And I think that people really underappreciate that. Those things that can result in, in fantastic growth and wonderful success, there's often a, a flip side to that that can be used to do some real harm. 
And you've got to be appreciative of that and understand it so that you can be looking for it. It's the defense against the dark arts, if you will. And the other one is that people often don't realize this, but like I used to play hockey and I watched a lot of people who were figure skaters kind of in practice. And one thing that I always noticed was that professional figure skaters, the people who are really experts, they fall down a lot more than the amateurs do. And it's because amateurs tend to practice what they're good at because they're looking for the reinforcement of, hey, I'm good at this. I know how to do this. Whereas professionals are always pushing. They're always stretching themselves to try to accomplish something more. And they know that falling down is, is kind of part of the process. I like how that is such a clear contrast and visual. Nice. Thank you. How about a favorite study or bit of research? I was originally going to say the, the Seeking Wisdom book is a good book to read. In the absence of that, if there was one like scientist that I would say that almost everyone should study, his name would be Claude Shannon. And he was the guy who created information theory and is actually responsible for a huge percentage of the things that we do day in and day out right now when it comes to computer science and the early days of AI and whatnot. But Claude Shannon was the guy who technically he was working on, on encryptions for military stuff. But this guy, if you understand his work, you'll find yourself with a greater understanding of how people work. And it will give you a higher level of empathy because you're going to start understanding that the world that you're living in, the reality that you believe to be true, is not reality for everyone else. Everyone has their own interpretation of reality. And the sooner that you realize that, and the sooner you start focusing on what's that other person's reality and how can I make sure that I understand and, and I'm empathizing with that, kind of the, the farther you'll go in life. Okay. And any other key books you'd recommend? Because... I know a lot of the people here are, are talking about getting a job. Look into something called the Minto Pyramid Principle. Ah, oh, yes. Barbara Minto. Great writing is important in your career, and being able to present your ideas is important in your career, and, and Barbara Minto is uniquely qualified to kind of help people organize those things. Okay. And how about a favorite tool? Like, honestly, my favorite tool is our dry erase markers, specifically ultra-fine tip dry erase markers, because I have really small handwriting and I have a whole bunch of whiteboards in my office. That's like the mid-version of it. If you have an office with whiteboards, if you don't have an office with whiteboards, get 11 by 17 paper, because you can express a lot more ideas on, on a little bit bigger sheet, and it, it gives a little bit extra consequence. And then when you have some money to burn, go buy yourself something called a, a Microsoft Studio, because it's amazing. What is a Microsoft Studio? You... We'll notice that the moment you type it into Google, because it's got this, it had this beautiful launch with these wonderful advertisements. It's this 27 inch screen that you can like push down to kind of have a flat kind of drafting type surface. And it has the pen tool on it. And as someone who spent my entire life trying to take the notes that I take on paper when I'm reading and, and writing and all this stuff and, and put them onto a screen, like the studio is just amazing. Now it's just as a replacement for Pen and paper, it's just a ridiculous waste of money because I think it's like $3,500 or something like that, but it's fantastic. It's so good that even like I can't convince myself to buy another one. So I literally will carry this desktop. I will put it in its original box and carry it back and forth to my house on the weekends to make sure that I can like still get at it if I have a good idea. It's great. Oh, I love it. And how about a favorite habit? Like figure out how to find your own flow. I'm sure that flow has been talked about a number of times on, on this podcast, but like you've got to find your own routine and kind of the one that works for you. But like you should know what it takes to get yourself into a mindset that allows for kind of maximal output. Okay. Yeah. And what is it for you? 
I have a very unique working schedule. Literally the way that I space out my day and the way that I space out my week, like I have a true commitment to it where I do the exact same thing every week. And that's absolutely crazy. And I, I would recommend it to anybody else, but it works for me. And it's important to kind of keeping me centered. And I'd love to know, how do you enforce the rest of the world <laughs> when, when they want a piece of you at certain times to such that you stick with the schedule? why my schedule exists. So I am, I'm a person who is consistently in the maker category where I'm doing research and trying to create cool new things on my own. I'm in the manager category because I have a couple of businesses that I'm responsible for running and staff and clients and all those things. And I, I also have family and I, I've got to find a way to serve those three people. Let's forget about social and all that other stuff. I, nobody has any of that if you have these three, but like it's hard to kind of make sure that I can fulfill my obligations to these groups of people that I really genuinely want to spend time with, but also find time to get in the zone myself and get stuff done. So I, for example, I work a lot of nights. So like I will sometimes start my day at noon or one o'clock and I'll spend four or five hours with my staff and then I'll kind of work all night so that I can get stuff done and so that I can be available to my kids when they wake up and when they go to bed. But that's just kind of what works for me. You know, and it's really about prioritizing my time and making sure that like, I want to set myself up to have as much success as I can and to kind of minimize the, the switching costs, the cognitive load of going from one thing to another. Right. I see. And so what are the sleep hours then? I mean, these are ones that I literally would not recommend to anybody else okay. because <laughs> I've, been, I've been doing this and you know, this as, as one of my older friends, I've been doing this for a very, very long time, maintaining these kind of crazy schedules, but I generally come into work on Monday around 10 or 11, and then I stay at work until Tuesday night around 5 or 6, and I work that whole time. Then I go home and see my kids Tuesday night. I wake up with my kids on Wednesday morning and spend a few hours with them there, and then I do it again. I go in Wednesday afternoon. I work all night. I go home Thursday, and then I do it again on Friday. So No I, kidding. I, like for the last year or so, I've only slept four nights a week. But it's definitely not something I would recommend to the masses because it takes a while to get used to. And it's also not something that I would do if it weren't for the nature of my work right now. Like there are reasons why I don't want to go to sleep with half of an idea, but I would expect that to change. But it's more about the fact that like I found myself for too long feeling like I was always having to uh, shortchange somebody. And I didn't want to not be there for my kids ever and not ever be home during the week. And I didn't want to have to blow off my staff or not be able to take new meetings. And I, I also didn't want to miss out on the time that I felt was important for me continuing to make progress on, on my life's work. And it's just, this is the schedule that I found worked for me. And it turns out that like, I don't really value sleep probably as highly as I should have. Certainly not more than I value the other things. Wow. That is fascinating. Thank you. I knew your, uh, your hours were interesting, but I didn't know that they were so systematically uh, repeated in this fashion. And it's very intriguing. Yeah. I've never been a big like world wrestling federation fan, but I have become enamored with the rock over the last kind of two or three years here, because oftentimes I am up at three o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning. And for me, that's like midday a lot of times. I'm really just starting to get going and I'll, I'll take a break just kind of give myself a little reset on something I'm working on. And I kept going online. And when I'd open Instagram or something like that, I would see The Rock. And The Rock would also <laughs> be up at three o'clock in the morning. And he would be saying and doing the exact same thing I was saying and doing to myself. He'd be literally in the gym, in the iron paradise, he calls it, because he wants to make sure that he is the hardest worker in the room. And I always thought to myself, like, man, like 
this is the people, sexiest man in the world, and the highest earning actor, and all these things. And yet he always grounds himself by saying, like, he does not sacrifice his time in the gym. Whether it's a 12-hour a day or a 30-hour day, that guy is in the gym because, like, it's not work for him. That's just that is how he keeps himself centered. And, like, I really, really, really respect his, his work ethic. And, and I think he and I share the same mentality that we're either going to win or lose. But if we lose, we're going to be 100% sure that we did everything we could possibly do to succeed. And like, I don't like quitting. So that's the only thing I take a lot of risks in my life and, and I've failed plenty of times, but I don't quit. And I just, I like that mentality and that keeps me focused. Awesome. And is there a particular nugget that you share with your working with folks that really seems to connect and resonate with them? They're taking notes, nodding their heads, like saying, yes, Russ. Yes. Honestly, I don't know because like that implies that I'm saying something that's making them extra successful when in reality, like that's not my job. Like my job isn't to, isn't to make them fantastically successful. My job is just to kind of like watch their back and make sure that they don't fail. I'm, I'm Jimmy Cricket in a lot of their lives. So a lot of times I'm having kind of like radically honest conversations with them about things that matter. But mostly I just, I want to make sure that they know that we're there for them when we can be. Okay. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? I'd probably point them at, to Tradecraft. I mean, if we're plugging something, go to tradecraft.com. Otherwise, I would say like, go find yourself Claude Shannon because... You will change your life. Okay. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Know what your TM plus two is. Make sure that the next job that you're getting, like recognize that, like I used to be a speechwriter and I, I learned from some really great people in that. And they often told me like, you know what the point of the first sentence is? To get someone to listen to the second sentence. And like, it's really stressful when you're just trying to get a job, especially early in your career when you're in survival mode, you're, the money's kind of running out of your bank account, you're getting pressure from your parents, you're seeing your friends get jobs. Like, it's really easy to kind of lose sight of the big picture and just recognize that every job you get, every opportunity you take, it's always about kind of going towards that greater goal, your, your vocation, your life's work. Be thinking five years out because I promise you it's easier. A lot of the details fade away. It's not as it's not as scary when you're thinking five years out. It's just it either feels right or it doesn't. Awesome. Well, Russ, thanks so much for taking this time. This has been a ton of fun. We finally recorded a conversation of ours and, and hopefully it's helpful to the world and you know, keep on rocking. Thank you very much, Pete. So much good stuff to dig into there. And I really encourage you in particular this time to check out the show notes. That's awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep255. And one of the links you'll find there is pretty potent. And it's it's on over that link he mentioned on Medium, the, the cognitive bias coder. And, and it is just a gorgeous work of art with some nice elaborations. So you can go broad or deep to 188 separate cognitive biases that, that we humans can be prone to. And, and so I think that is quite eye-opening and humbling to just get you into a place like, oh yeah, we frequently make these kinds of mistakes so often that we have names for them, 188 different names for them, beautifully represented. I am thinking about getting this a gorgeous chart uh, printed and, and placed in my home office because it's so good. I can't recall last time I was so heart-thumpingly excited about a piece of, of content that I bumped into. So thanks, Russ, for sharing that. You can search for cognitive bias cheat sheet medium or just go to the show notes all spent your com slash f255 to check that out pretty cool stuff 
which is well worth a, a deep look. And if you haven't already, I hope you push subscribe to hear from our next guest. It is Mark Murphy. And Mark really has shared some cool ways to engage in conversations at a much higher level and to sort through some of the emotional stuff to get to the facts. He has a, a model I've learned called FIRE that has shown up again and again in my thinking conversations with people. So I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.